Hey there, my name is Tenley Garrett, and I just want to welcome you to Love Chapel Hill, where our name is our mission, to love Chapel Hill with the heart of Jesus. I'm really excited you decided to join us today, and I just want you to sit back and soak in the word and um, just know how deeply you are loved by our Lord and our Savior. Hey everyone, I'm Trevor. I'm Kelsey. I'm Gabriella, And I'm Mackenzie. Welcome to Love Chapel Hill. Thanks for joining us. If this is your first time tuning in with us, be sure to fill out our Connect card. You can find the link to the Connect card either on our Facebook page or at the bottom of our YouTube video. Also, if you want to know more information about Love Chapel Hill, you can ask a question in the comment box below on the YouTube video, or you can also reach out via the Facebook page. Enjoy the service! Hi everyone, I'm Sam. And I'm Kelsey, and we just wanted to take this time to encourage you all to go to lovechapelhill.com to find some resources of how to stay connected during this time. Whether it's for virtual kids, for small groups, for prayer, or social options, we have something for everyone on this site, and it's a great resource to become involved with the community during this time apart. We really miss you all, and hopefully we'll be able to connect again in the future. As we prepare to enter into worship this morning, uh, we pause to remember that today is Reformation Sunday. It's a day when the church around the world celebrates what God did through the Protestant Reformation. We remember that the great reformer Martin Luther uh, was used by God to take a stand at a pivotal moment in history. And we also embrace that God is calling us to take a stand in our own moment as well. We find that footing in the reality of grace alone, faith alone, in Christ alone, as revealed in Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. Our call to worship this morning comes from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 9. And here's what the Apostle Paul has to say to us. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Yes, you have broken every curse. 
Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, rivers of living water will flow from within them. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. What's up, Love Chapel Hill? What's up, Love Chapel Hill? Make some virtual noise if you love Jesus. I know you love Jesus. I can't hear you, but I want you to open up your mouths, open up your hearts, and let's lift up a sound to the Lord, the one that redeemed us, the one that has rescued us, the one who has saved us of our sins, and the one who's coming back for us one glorious day. I am thrilled to be with you today. I'm so grateful to be here, and I'm so grateful to my good friend, Matt Leroy, for this invitation. Uh, Justin, Joel, all of the Love Chapel Hill family. I know some of you are looking at me like, who is this guy? Well, my name is Mark Johnson, and I have the great pleasure of pastoring Life Church in the Chapel Hill, Durham area, and it's just a blessing to be with you guys today. Uh, as we start into God's word, I want for us to spend a moment in prayer. So would you bow your heads? Father, we thank you for this time spent together over your word. We pray that you would bless it and bless us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, grab your Bibles and something to take notes with. I believe that the Spirit is going to speak to us today. And I'm excited because we are continuing this series called Kingdom Tide. Kingdom Tide. And the prophet that I want to speak about today is none other than Malachi. I want us to talk through the book of Malachi. Malachi is the closing section of the Hebrew book of the 12. It's the end of the prophetic corpus. And in our Christian English Bibles, it's typically located at the end of the Old Testament. Malachi is my favorite book of all the prophets. And that's saying a lot because there are so many great ones. But Malachi is my favorite. I'm drawn to Malachi's prophecy because remember, when God speaks through Malachi, there is prophetic silence for the next 400 years. 400 years of God saying nothing prophetically. From the moment Malachi closes his mouth in Malachi chapter 4 to the moment when John the Baptist opens his mouth, in Matthew chapter three, there is prophetic silence. And so what God speaks through Malachi are essentially God's last words before this extensive time of silence. And we should be drawn to those words, those last words before we start to get the message of the coming savior. I want us to read some of those words together today. But before we get into the content, let's talk a little bit about the context. Now, Malachi's name in Hebrew means my messenger, my messenger. And for that reason, many have argued that Malachi wasn't actually a person, or if it was a person, it wasn't a person's name, it was more a person's title. And what furthers this argument is that we really don't know a lot about Malachi. We don't necessarily know who was reigning at the time of Malachi's prophecy. We don't know all the, uh, the, the key players that were in place. Uh, but what we do know is that uh, Malachi's ministry takes place nearly a hundred years after the decree.
decree of Cyrus the Great. This is around 538 BC. And that decree is significant in Israelite history because it essentially ended the Babylonian captivity. And this allowed the Israelites, the Jews, to return to their homeland to rebuild their beloved temple and to restart temple worship practices. Malachi's ministry also happens some 80 years after the prophet Haggai and the prophet Zechariah prophetically encourage the Jews to rebuild the temple. And the promises that Haggai and Zechariah make to the people is that when you rebuild the temple and when you restart your worship to God, they promise that God's people would experience God's presence in their midst, God's peace from times of war, times of captivity, times of oppression, God's prosperity all throughout their land, God's presence, God's peace, God's prosperity. Doesn't that sound amazing? There's just one problem. The people had rebuilt the temple. The people had restarted their worship, but they didn't see any of the promises those prophets made them. And what they failed to realize was, was this that even though they were in their homeland, even though they had rebuilt the temple, even though they had restarted and rebuilt those altars, they expected that God would just look beyond their sins, look beyond all the injustices, look beyond all the corruption and just bless them anyway. What they failed to realize is that covenant relationship doesn't work like that. And what I want to show you is what Malachi begins to prophesy and minister to God's people during this time. As we approach now the the layout of this prophetic book, we see that God takes issue with both the priests and the people. And God does so in this very unique style. It's it's called disputation style. It's it's this uh, thing where God raises an assertion. God lifts an indictment. God makes some kind of critique on God's people. And then God predicts what their response is going to be. And before they can get it out of their mouths, God is already shredding that response with overwhelming and undeniable evidence. Let me show you an example of that as we move into chapter one of the book of Malachi. Looking at verse six, it says, the Lord of heaven's armies says to the priests, a son honors his father and a servant respects his master. If I am your father and master, where are the honor and respect I deserve? You have shown contempt for my name. God lifts this as an assertion. God lifts this as an indictment. But you ask, how have we ever shown contempt for your name? God predicts what their response is going to be. He gives them their response before they even have it. And then verse seven, God says, you have shown contempt by offering defiled sacrifices on my altar. God begins to respond to their response and begins to provide evidence, overwhelming evidence of his assertion. And that pattern, as you read through the four chapters of the book of Malachi, God follows that pattern over and over again. Let's keep pressing into this, though, because remember, God first addresses the priests and then God addresses the people. God takes 
the priests and the people to task for the condition of their worship, for the condition of their practices, for the condition of their hearts. God starts with the priests. And so in chapter one, uh, verses six through 14, God critiqued their sacrifices because according to the sacrificial system, according to the Levitical law that we find in the book of Leviticus early on in the Old Testament, from chapter one, you can start to see the requirements of that sacrificial system. Whenever the people of Israel were making sacrifices, whenever the priests were making sacrifices, they were to take animals that were unblemished, animals that were unspotted, animals without defect, and they would slay those animals. They would sprinkle blood around the altar. And this was the measure, the temporary measure put in place to atone for the sins of the nation. Well, fast forward because the priests here in Malachi are not following the rules. They're making sacrifices with animals that are blind, animals that are disabled, animals that are crippled. They are making sacrifices with animals that are contaminated and diseased. And they knew the rules, but were deciding not to follow the rules. And God critiques their sacrifices. This critique continues over into chapter two starting at verse one, because God then critiques their leadership. God critiques their leadership. Once again, we learned from earlier in the Old Testament that the uh, Levitical system and the priestly system was put in place to be a, a type of spiritual leadership to God's people. That as the people followed the instructions and the examples set by the priest and the Levites, it was supposed to lead God's people out of sin and into righteousness. But the priests at the time of Malachi's prophecy were not following in this way. Not only were they not leading people out of sin, but they were causing people to stumble in sin. They were supposed to be leading people to the heart of the Father. Instead, their actions were leading people astray. God then turns God's attention from the priest to the people. And so in the second half of chapter two, God critiques the fidelity of God's people. When you read it, and I do want you to read it after it's over, it's very short, four chapters. You can do it in one sitting. But when you read this, you'll, you'll see that uh, God was uh, calling these people out because they were marrying with other nations that were leading them in idolatrous worship. God was calling them out because if they weren't marrying those who were worshiping idols, they were putting away, they were divorcing their spouses. The men were divorcing their wives for, for very superficial and ungodly reasons. They, they were really divorcing their wives so that they could justify their other actions. And God sees all and God knows all and God begins to call them out for their unfaithfulness and their infidelity. That section is where we get that famous scripture that folks often quote, for I hate divorce, says the Lord. And I know there is nuance in the application of that verse today, but you gotta understand the original context was that people were opting for the easy way out to justify and to satisfy their sinful desires and pleasures. God moves from critiquing their fidelity to critiquing their sacrifices. Now, I already mentioned that in chapter one, God critiques the sacrifices of the priests. But here in chapter 
Three, God is now critiquing the sacrifices of the people. For the priests, God was critiquing the quality of their sacrifices. Now here, for the people, God is critiquing the quantity of their sacrifices. And this is the passage where we usually uh, hear about tithes and offerings. It's that place where many a preacher and many a church have used to beat people over the head about giving your money to the church. And they would say, uh, bring all your tithes and offerings into the storehouse so that there can be meat and substance in my house. And then they promise this blessing. See, won't uh, God open up a window and pour out a blessing that we don't have room enough to receive? Well, the context of this is really a uh, an assertion, an indictment, God is saying to God's people, you're not even bringing your tithes to the offering. Our arrangement, our agreement, our contract, what I instructed you to do from long ago is to bring these items into the temple so that we would have enough for the priests, for the Levites, for those in need. And God is saying, you're not even showing up with your side of the agreement. In fact, God in this famous passage calls them robbers. God says, you are robbing me. He critiques their sacrifices. And then in verse 13 and following of that same chapter, chapter three, God then critiques their complaints. I want you to see this, uh, these words in chapter three, starting at verse 13. Hear the word of the Lord. You have said terrible things about me, says the Lord. But you say, what do you mean? What have we said against you? There again is that structure of God making an indictment and then uh, already assuming what their response is going to be. And now listen to God's response in verse 14. You have said, what's the use of serving God? What have we gained by obeying his commands or by trying to show the Lord of heaven's armies that we are sorry for our sins? From now on, we will call the arrogant blessed for those who do evil get rich and those who dare God to punish them suffer no harm. The people were essentially saying, what's the benefit of doing it your way, God? Have you ever been there? Have you ever been in a moment in your life where you're doing all you can for God? You're you're being a, a steady, consistent contributor to your local church. You're praying, reading scripture outside of the church and outside of your small groups. You you have a personal, vibrant relationship with God. And yet and still, it seems like after doing all those things, the people who are giving God no attention seem to be the ones who are blessed, seem to be the ones who are prosperous, seem to be the ones who are winning. It's the folk who are doing evil that seems to be enjoying all of life. And these people in the book of Malachi had reached a place where they were fed up with seeing how the wicked were being blessed. And they said, and they're saying to God, God, what is the benefit of serving you? God critiques their complaints. He adjusts their world view. And later on, you'll read in the book of Malachi that God says that there is a day coming. God says, keep serving me. Keep being faithful to me. I know it's difficult right now, but God says there is a day coming where I'm going to separate the righteous and the wicked. God says, your sacrifices are sorry. Your leadership is lacking. Your fidelity is fractured. Your complaints are carnal and your worldview is worldly. And he says all this through his prophet, to his priests, to his people, just to get them to see this one thing. That God cared about the condition of their hearts. 
As a matter of fact, that's the, the big idea of my sermon today. So I want you to write that down and I want you to write it in all caps or if you're typing digitally, this is, will be the time when you make the text all caps. God cares about the condition of our hearts. In fact, make that personal in your notes so that when you read it again, it will speak to you. God cares about the condition of my heart. Because it is a condition of the heart to act one way and to speak one way when you're with this group and speak and act a completely different way when you're with that group. It is a condition of the heart to speak so loudly about certain injustices while being woefully silent in the consideration of other injustices, especially when it doesn't fit your politic or your personal conviction or your interpretation of scripture. It is a condition of the heart to speak about the tragedies of the losses that we've experienced in 2020 to this pandemic, to speak about those numbers in a way that are simply statistics when there are families and groups of people hurting at the loss of this, to turn those numbers for political manipulation and gain. It is a condition of the heart to become numb to the disproportionate and alarming amount of black and brown bodies that are dying or being incarcerated. It is is a condition of the heart that has caused the, the faith of so many of us to wane and to wax cold because we are so accustomed to going to church. We had grown so accustomed to going to church that we forgot we are the church. It is a condition of the heart to give all our energy and all our effort toward our careers, toward our academic programs, toward our so-called callings, to, to give everything we got to those things while giving our loved ones our leftovers. It is a condition of the heart that's made us okay with being public successes while being private failures. It is a condition of the heart that has caused us to value likes and hearts and comments and retweets. We value those things more than the feedback we get from our children and our spouse and our loved ones. It is a condition of the heart. And the condition of the heart of Israel during the time of Malachi's ministry had gotten so dark, so dim, so dismal that they had reached a place of expecting God to do the most while they gave God their least. They had reached a place where they were begging for God's best, but only willing to give God their least. I wonder if that unfortunately describes some in our day where we've reached this place of wanting God to give us God's very best. But when God is requiring our best, we have a problem with it. We want God to give us grace and mercy. We want God to accept whatever we bring. We want God's most, but we want to give God the least of us. And it's into this 
attitude, it's into this atmosphere, it's into this moment in history that Malachi speaks. It's a condition of the heart. And that's why it's a blessing that God led you to a church like Love Chapel Hill. And that's why, if you haven't already, shameless plug, you need to be running to sign up for a band. And you need to make sure that you're taking advantage of the opportunities to study the Bible during the week and taking advantage of the opportunities to pray together in groups during the week. Because when you are in those kind of environments, you get asked these types of questions. How is your heart? How is your soul. Jesus speaks these words in Matthew chapter 15, verse 8. He's echoing the prophet Isaiah from chapter 29 in Isaiah. He says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And God sends his prophet Malachi to deliver this message. Repent and return to God. Repent and return to God. In a way, this brackets that 400 years of silence that I mentioned, because Malachi's message is eerily similar to John the Baptist and his ministry and his message. On both ends of this, they bracket this space of prophetic silence. Malachi is saying, repent and return to God. John the Baptist is saying on his end, repent for the kingdom is at hand. There is this bracket. And uh, so much so I, I see this that uh, I, I, I've called the message today Bracketology, bracketology, uh, because I, I want us to see that even in Malachi's message, there is a bracket, that Malachi's message is a message of repentance. But on both sides of this message is a bracket. There, there are brackets. There is this message of love on one end. And on the other end, there is this message of hope. Let me show you two verses as I move toward the end of this message today. The first one is in Malachi chapter one, verse two. And the second verse is in Malachi chapter four, verse two. Now, again, make no mistakes about it. Malachi's ministry, Malachi's prophecy is one of repentance. But on both ends, there is this message of love and a message of Hope. Look at it play out in Malachi chapter one, verse two. Just the first part. God says this. I have always loved you, says the Lord. Let me speak that over someone who is feeling low today. Let me speak these words over someone who is feeling rejected today. Let me speak this over someone who, who feels as though their last mistake disqualified them from the presence of God and your last mistake would ever cause God to do away with you. God says to you today, I have always loved you. One a famous preacher said it this way, God loves us. He always always has and he always will. Someone listening to the sound of my voice today needs to be reminded that God loves you relentlessly. God loves you recklessly. God loves you, all of you, the good, the bad, and the ugly. God loves us. God says, I've always loved you. That's the message of love. But then if you turn to Malachi chapter four, verse two, I want you to hear these words. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. The son of 
righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. Remember, a part of Malachi's prophecy is to not only prophesy the coming Savior, but he prophesies the one who will announce the coming Savior. Elijah, Malachi refers to it, but Jesus identifies that person as John the Baptist. And Malachi wants to ensure God's people that although God is being harsh in God's tone toward them, God still has a plan to rescue them, still has a plan to save them, still has a plan to redeem them. And God's plan is yet unfolding. Malachi prophesies, predicts a day when uh, those who fear the name of the Lord, those who revere God's name, those who respect and trust in God, they will see the son of righteousness, the son of righteousness, the son of righteousness rise with healing in his Wings. This brings us full circle because the kingdom tide is forming and the kingdom tide is rising. The kingdom tide is where holiness and love collide. The kingdom tide is where justice and righteousness are interwoven and intertwined. Don't forget that it's righteousness and justice, that righteousness is our right relationship with God, that justice is our right relationship with each other. These two cannot and these two must not be separated. And God is calling God's people back to this place of justice and righteousness, righteousness and justice. So our reframe in Amos chapter five, verse 24, but let justice roll on like a river and righteousness like a never ending, a never failing stream. As we end our time together today, let this be our closing prayer and let it be our personal prayer. Would you repeat these words after me? Lord God, let justice roll on like a river in my community. Let justice roll on like a river in my country. Let justice roll on like a river in this world and righteousness like a never ending stream in my life and righteousness like a never ending stream in my heart and righteousness like a never ending stream in my family. Lord, send a revival and let it begin in me. In Jesus name. Amen. Love Chapel Hill, I want to thank you so much for letting me share with you today. Prayerfully, you got something out of the message. And when things are safer, and as the Lord says the same, I look forward to being with you all again very soon. Take care. Perfect love
My name is Joel, and I am so thankful you chose to spend your time with us today. It is always great when we get to have our friend Pastor Mark Johnson come and bring the Word of God to us. God is doing amazing things through him and our friends at Life Church in our very own community. And we just have such a great relationship with each other. So anytime we get to do anything together, it is a great day. So I want to close today with actually two words. We have unity, we have love. Now you may be thinking in a world where we are so divided and we are divisive about almost every subject and topic you can think of that the word unity may even feel a bit like a fairy tale or impossible. However, the hope of unity is found in the love of Jesus. We find Jesus talking in the book of John chapter 15 verse 12 where he says, This is my command that you love each other as I have loved you. So let's look at the life of Jesus just for a second. We could look at how he instructs us to pray for our enemies, or maybe, maybe even how he interacted with those uh, that were at odds with him. But let's look a little closer to Jesus. Let's look at those who he chose as his followers, his 12 followers, his 12 disciples. And we see within this 12, we see multiple different types of people. We have, uh, we have Peter and Andrew who are uh, common Jewish fishermen, but we also have, uh, we have a person like Matthew who is a tax collector. If you're not up on what a tax collector was during that time, so a tax collector was a Jewish person that uh, would have worked for Romans to collect money from people like Peter and Andrew, and they were considered traitors to their own people. So you have Jesus choosing 
uh, two different sets of people that would otherwise have nothing to do with each other, at least nothing healthy or nothing constructive, and he brings them together. So when our world is most divided, it is the love of Jesus that bridges that distance, that steps across that divide, that brings us together, that we are separate no more. I wanna encourage you over the next few weeks, as we are coming closer to a very divisive election, when we are being pushed to be divided, when our society says we are supposed to hate our neighbor, to hate our brothers and sisters because they think differently than us, that we are called as followers of Jesus to be something different, to step in that middle, to step in that gap, and to love like him. Thank you for joining us today. You are sent to, follow, to love Chapel Hill or wherever you are with the heart of Jesus. Thank you.